This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. A good day, friends. Today we have Francisco Hernandez, who is a Green Parliamentary candidate for Dunedin North. He is former president of the Otago Students Association and was the person who had to negotiate the transition from a voluntary or from a um, non-voluntary organization to a voluntary organization. And he has also been on the Tertiary Education Commission, the Climate Change Commission, and is currently Principal Climate Change Advisor at the Otago Regional Council. You can podcast this by going to oar.org and then going to podcast and then going to community or chaos. Well, can you tell us, um, does your family come, or do you come from a family of university graduates? Uh, my mom is, but my dad isn't, okay. so half and half. Okay. How did your background experience in coming from a Filipino family influenced your worldview? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, growing up in the Philippines, uh, and then you move to New Zealand, it's a completely different context and a different situation. Um, you kind of grow up as a 1.5 generation kid. And yeah, I guess coming from, you know, a country where there wasn't that many public services and coming to a country like New Zealand, where we've been blessed by a welfare state, you, you kind of see what the difference is in having um you know, a more prosperous country that is able to provide better for its citizens. Yes. And what did you learn from your experience as a Togo University student leader? You I th- take your time. I think the big thing that I learned there was the power of um, collective organization. Um, by yourself as a student, there's not much you can do as an individual, but by banding together and working together as a student union, you're able to kind of deliver services at scale and like advocate for things at a scale. Um, for example, during my time, we were able to, um, you know, work with the university to improve student housing. Um, we were able to. Um, put in things like student shuttles, and we were able to provide free breakfast for students, um, you know, using partly um, material that would have been 
thrown away by big shops and such. So, yeah, I think you learn the power of collective organization to help affect change for people. In some ways, the universities are fortunate is that the groups of people living together, it might be easier to organize than, than say, uh, a lot of shop assistants, for instance. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of shop assistants are also university students, so it's not, <laughs> it's not like a one or the other. What did you like most about the being a student leader? I think the ability to like make change for people was the best thing about the role. Um, you know, seeing the difference that our student free student breakfast made for people in terms of um, actually helping people out underground and being able to implement change like that was really good. And you know, when you're a student president, you're fairly young. Um, I think I was 21 or 22 when I was elected, and just seeing the, just seeing how you can make a difference at a, at such a little level um, is really it's a big privilege to have at that age. Yes. The great majority of people going into politics are university graduates, while less than 30% of the population is graduated from university. And the great majority of people doing essential work, such as uh, shop assistants, uh, supermarkets, the plumbers, the cleaners, uh, haven't been to university. Yet they're not really represented in Parliament directly. In most cases, there are very few non-graduates nowadays in Parliament. Do you ever think about that? I think there's two aspects to your question, and the first is that we should work to improve university and make it more accessible for a broader range of people, um, and not just university. I mean, tertiary education encompasses like a wide variety of roles, from apprenticeships to trade. Um, the trade certificates, to polytech and things like that. And making sure that people have enough to live on while they're studying is a big part of that. Uh, making sure that people can go to university without, uh, go to university or tertiary education without being saddled with student, with crippling student debt is, a, is another part of that. So, you know, to make parliament more representative, we can work to increase the, um, the number of uh, tertiary graduates uh, overall. And the second part of your question is that um, I think there's a notion that, you know, just because you graduate from a university that you're some kind of part of the elite or something. Um, I think that's the implication of your question. But I think that's increasingly changing in this generation. Um, we, you know, this I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and privileged enough to um, have gone to university and been able to secure like a professional, well-paying job, um, which is, you know, which is really good. But I, I think a lot of the people going to university or some kind of tertiary education these days don't have that experience. Um, they graduate with tens of thousands of dollars in debt, and then they have to go and work in service um, jobs, which are low-paying and often insecure. So, yeah, just because you're a university student doesn't automatically mean that you're part of the elite. And, you know, some of our essential workers at supermarkets and uh, caregivers and um, restaurants are, and bartenders are, in fact, university graduates. And, 
you know, even those okay. that are university graduates also do essential work. Um, I wouldn't call doctors, nurses, and caregivers and teachers as somehow not being essential workers. No, but they, they've always been um, accepted and um, seen as part of seen as important, whereas uh, people working in supermarkets or people cleaning haven't. Yeah, they've always been important to main degrees. But the other thing that I'm not sure you should actually need to have a university degree to go into Parliament. Yeah, absolutely. Norman Kirk was probably the best Prime Minister we've had. Well, and Michael Joseph Savage, I absolutely agree with that 100%. And I think that's one thing that's changed, really. And I noticed, in my opinion... It's a bit biased, but I think one of the worst governments we've ever had was one of the best educated governments we ever had. Which one was that one? 1986. Ah, uh, yeah. Labor under Longy. Yes. Douglas. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, a tertiary education is is a set of experiences and um, qualifications that come with that. But, I mean, I don't think just because you go to university, you're any more special or than any other person. doesn't give you wisdom, does it? No. No. I like what you said about other kinds of tertiary education because I think it's really important that not everybody wants to be an academic or can be an academic. And, um, but everybody's got something to contribute. And to enable people to get apprenticeships or whatever. It's quite important, but I think one of the reasons we're in a bit of a spot now is that we haven't, we neglected that to a pretty big degree until recently. I think we're aware of it now, but uh, it was somewhat neglected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think training those, I mean, training the Training people who can help transition us to a climate-safe future is one of the things that we'll need to prioritize, you know, like because installing rooftops, solar will take tens of thousands of electricians, you know. Improving public transport will take tens of thousands of bus drivers. Um, These skills, and it's skilled work, I don't believe there's um, such a thing as unskilled work, is, is really important that we're training people. And you don't necessarily get that from a university education, and yet yeah, we basically need to value um, all forms of labor. I mean, we found out what happens when you don't. We couldn't get any bus drivers. That's right, we, yes. Not because there weren't bus drivers, people that could get on it. We didn't do their training, but also we, did, we didn't pay them. Yes, yeah. We uh, made them do broken shifts, yeah. you know, four hours at one end of the day and four hours at another end of the day with three or four hours in between. Yes, absolutely. And then we wonder why we didn't get bus drivers. Yeah, it's it's sad the way that we've treated um, bus drivers and um, the working class in this country. What do you? What kind of society would you like to have? When you hear the word common good, what does it sound like? To you? What does that make you think of? Oh, it sounds very good to me. I think the common good is about ensuring the well-being of uh, everyone, not just the wealthy few. But to me, it also means ensuring the well-being of 
the planet that we live uh, in yeah. and the species uh-huh. that live in it. Um, because, you know, just because we're human doesn't mean that we get to treat the planet we like, that we get to treat the planet like our dumping ground. We should... We live in a dump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, we need to look after uh, the animals and nature and the wider planet, and that's what common good means to me. Okay. I think that's one of the things I like about the term because it is... It finds it seeks, seeks what we're what we have in common instead of how different we all are, mm. and it it should include the, the planet and the life on it. Yes, I agree one hundred percent. Why hasn't New Zealand government done more to mitigate climate change, and why aren't we? trying to catch up at this point? Uh, I think the question, I mean, it's not just the New Zealand government, which is not to excuse the failures of the New Zealand government, but like every government in the world has failed to act on climate change when the information became clear more than 100 years ago. People have been prioritizing um, the short term over the long term for the longest period of time. And, you know, part of it is convenience, but also part of it has been like a massive disinformation campaign from the uh, big oil corporations who've suppressed the evidence and who've deliberately lied to people and manipulated the evidence to um, make us think that climate, that the climate threat wasn't as real as it actually is. Um, in my opinion, like the, the, the big fossil fuel companies have had a big, big play to, big, big part to play in the situation that we find ourselves in today. And I guess as for what we can be doing about it, like I guess at a New Zealand level, um, there's been some encouraging steps in the emissions trajectory of Aotearoa. Um, For the first time ever, the emissions have been bending downwards on the curve. But you and I know that that progress isn't fast enough and that even though we've got a Labour government, it's been a Labour majority government that's been too willing to prioritise the short term over the long term. I mean, you saw what happened uh, in Chris Hipkins' policy bonfire earlier where they threw out um, the container recycling scheme, which would have made um, a big difference in emissions. You saw what happened um, when Chris Hipkins threw out the Climate Change Commission's recommendation to um, fix the ETS. Um, Instead, they basically um, distorted the market and let, let the carbon uh, credits remain at such the low, scandalously low level that they've they've been in. So, yeah, and I guess the only way that we can really fix, I mean, the people who created this problem can only be beaten if we organize as people. So, you know, that means taking part in environmental mass movements, but it also means um, exercising your vote and making sure that you use it responsibly to prioritize um, progress at the ballot box as well as on the streets. Okay, could you go into some detail about what we didn't do and how we could do it better? What we didn't do and what we haven't done is um, take emissions seriously in New Zealand. For example, agriculture, which is half of our, nearly half of our emissions, still doesn't face a price on their emissions when every other sector of the economy does. Um, I think that's quite unfair. And I think a lot of farmers 
feel that they should be supported to make those uh, emissions reductions that we need so that New Zealand can really live up to our, I guess, mythos of being a clean, green country. I mean, that's one of the ways that we can improve things. Um, The second is that we've prioritized uh, investments in a car-centric way of living. We've let regional rail and just rail in general degrade and waste away um, until it's nothing when we should, we should like in Europe and in China, um, have regional rail that actually can service passenger transport across the region. And not only regional rail, but also freight rail as well. And if we take heavy truck off the roads, we can reduce the damage that's being done to them and save money in the long run as well as improving environmental outcomes. So yeah, those are like two key ideas that we could be doing right now. Can you explain how the government and the Green Party to some extent thinks that the market is a way to cut uh, carbon? Sorry, can you restate the question? Uh, how is How does the Green Party and how does the government see the market as cutting emissions? I think that's not the Green Party's view. I think the Greens believe in a variety of mechanisms to reduce emissions, uh, including complementary policy. And of course, when you say the market, we're we're basically what we're saying is uh, a price on emissions. Um, You could call that a market-based solution. Um, I just call it making sure that polluters appropriately pay for the pollution that they exert. And my view is that that price is not high enough and part of that part of the reason that that price isn't high enough is that the labor government um and they have a labor majority government hasn't prioritized emissions reductions and has allowed the ets um prices to collapse because of um prioritizing that short-term thinking can't the um people that are polluting just raise the prices of things to meet that cost so we pay, and they don't necessarily. The other thing is, uh, wouldn't taxing emissions be more direct and sure? That's basically, um, the emissions trading scheme is basically a price of uh, a tax on emissions. Um, the, uh, the advantage of emissions trading over... Um, a tax is that you can set a cap over the amount of um, carbon credits that you issue in the market. Whereas, uh, as you as you correctly um, pointed out earlier, that polluters can just keep paying the tax without having to do anything. Whereas, with an emissions trading scheme with a cap on it, you can limit the number of um, units that enter a market. Now, part of the problem that we have is that the government hasn't been enforcing that cap on emissions, which has allowed the market prices to get as low as they have, and they haven't accepted the Climate Change Commission's recommendation to have um, you know, a strong minimum price and have an effective and strong cap on the, allowed, the amount of emissions that do enter a market. How would you change that you change it just by getting more uh, green voters or yeah i mean i think part of the solution and you know 
it, it feels odd for a parliamentary candidate to be saying it, but it's only part of a solution is to, yes, help elect more Green MPs, and that means that the Greens having more say over what happens at Cabinet, but also participating in your society. Um, take part in um, the environmental movement. Um, don't just vote, obviously do vote, but you know, go and protest, go write to your MPs, go and take part in the civic society that we have, talk to your friends and family, um, talk to the clubs you're in, talk to the neighbours that you get on with. It's We all have a responsibility um, to play in overcoming this climate crisis, um, not just through voting, but through other means as well. Isn't this the way changes always really happen? Yes, like it's basically the... I mean, the Labour Party was once a mass party when they were radical. That's right, yes. And then they... I think it's when you become a professional group um, and less dependent on people, you're more likely to know your vision. I think part of the problem is that um, the Labour Party, to some extent, became a victim of its own success um you you might have heard the you might have heard the phrase that they walked to the polling booths to elect the labor government and then drove to the low polling booths to um vote labor out because of the um prosperity that labor was able to um you know that the first labor government was able to bring to the country through investing in people, through investing in state housing, through investing in strong unions that fought for um, good wages and good conditions, it created a level of prosperity across society uh, as such that, you know, a lot of formerly um, working people became um, comfortable in middle class and felt that their interests were best served by electing a national government. So, yeah, to some extent, that's mm. a challenge for any progressive movement is to keep those collective values alive and keep persuading voters that actually the things that prioritize the well-being of the least of us is actually the ones that will create the most prosperity and benefit for everyone in the long term. Isn't it the job of a radical government to actually keep on educating, keep on bringing people into the group, but also educating people in the wider sense. To me, this is one of the great tragedies of um, Jacinda Ardern, because I think she had the talent and the popularity to educate people and didn't, somehow. Yeah, and I think, I think you saw a lot of that with the cannabis referendum, how she didn't actually say how she was voting until after the voting had closed. And I mean, it was such a close result that a politician of not only Jacinda's talent, but her popularity at the time would have swung the like 0.5% of the votes we needed. I think that's always the problem with, um, you know, Labour. They, they, they chase power, but when, when they get it, they don't seem to know what to do with it. They kind of shift about and they, they drop the ball. And you saw that happening with Chris Hipkins earlier today, uh, earlier this week when he announced that he wouldn't be doing, um, well, he, he asserted that under a government that he leads that there would be no capital gains tax or wealth tax. Well, I mean... So that's what, not only just there won't be in this budget, it means in the next four years. Well, I mean, I, I say that Chris Hipkins can um, say whatever 
make whatever pledges he wants, but I think that just means he's ruling himself out as a minister in the next Greenland government. Now, the, um, do you see the Green Movement as becoming a mass movement? Uh, I think, I think the Green Movement started out as a mass movement, and it still remains a mass movement. Because um, if you think about, you know, the 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 environmentalist movement was kind of, you know, the the love child of, well, just in some countries, you know, of the anti-nuclear activism, of that anti-war activism from Vietnam. So I'd say that it's continued to be a mass movement. Um, it's got a little bit of professionalism in it, which is inevitable if you want to take part and compete in elections and build an administrative kind of apparatus that can sustain itself from generation to generation. But yes, I would still say it started as a mass movement. It's still a mass movement. Okay, we'll play some music now. Here I am One more time in light of this setting sun Shadows move silently Manifest my heaving breath And will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Away. I look around, I see our dreams, children laughing so beautiful, beneath the joy, the laughter's call, in the distance of Curtain falls and will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Carry us away. Flowers just framing love. Seen holy cities, seen open minds. Beach forest dreamed of golden pond. And will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? So much beauty 
Um, for those who will come by uh, from S Sweet Lover and Simon Kerr's band. I wonder sometimes about I was quite s surprised, pleasantly actually that the um, treasurer, Grant Robinson uh, was supporting tax reform and not so much with Parker, but sometimes I've wondered if one of the reasons that labor finds it really hard to do, especially things like tax reform, is that they broke with their tradition in 86. In fact, in some ways betrayed their tradition. But they haven't been able to admit that publicly, or maybe even to themselves. Do you think this is part of the problem? Yeah. and. It's been disappointing seeing Labour rule out capital gains tax and the wealth tax. I mean, um, as I think, I think if they're going to do things like that, they should rename themselves from Labour to Capital. If they're just going to, you know, suck up to wealthy people like that and not stand up for most of their voters, most of whom, and you saw that the, the Treasury modelling support that as well. Is that most, like ninety five percent of New Zealanders would have been better off with a tax switch. Um, and we've got a cost of living crisis, and that money might have really helped. Where does this put the Maori Party and the Green Party after the election? Because probably Labour will still be the largest of the parties on uh, on the left, if you want to call the Labour Party on the left. So, do you think you should be a part of cabinet and responsible for the decisions without necessarily the power to change them very much? Or should you just uh, give supply and confidence? Well, I mean, ultimately the the deal which which um, gets negotiated is um, will be up to the Green Party members for ratification. But my view is that we should prioritize our policy priorities over getting ministerial offices in positions. So um, if that means having no green ministers as part of the next government, but getting more of our policy through, my personal view is that we should prioritize that. Um, whatever shape of the next government ends up looking like, I think it will end up being a more progressive one, simply because this term, 
the Greens, uh, sorry, Labour has not needed the Greens or Te Pāti Māori. Whereas the next term, there's like no poll that's showing them in a position to form government without both the Labour, sorry, excuse me, without both the Green Party and Te Pāti Māori. So I'm confident we can push the government in a more progressive direction than they're willing they're even willing to let themselves admit and look it, it's ultimately i think it's quite arrogant of hipkins to rule things out without seeing what the actual results are i mean for all he knows he might end up being in the smaller party um so yeah uh it's actually who do you think of this idea that captains call and where does that leave cabinet and the rest of parliament where does it leave labor party mps yeah, and I mean... What is captain's call? What does it mean? I, I think captain's call is like, it's it's kind of like a unilateral decision made by the leadership without wider reference to, um, you know, a wider body of people. And I think maybe in some cases that's justifiable. For example, in the COVID emergency, I think there's like a lot of urgent decisions that Jacinda and... Um, that Jacinda had to make in a short time frame or people were going to die. Whereas here, they've had a long time to consider it and it's not a life or death matter. So I don't think the captain's call was justified. Um, and I think that's going to be causing a lot of unhappy people in the Labour caucus, um, that decision he made. That's interesting because uh, two of the highest ranking people in the cabinet and one who has slightly pleasantly surprised that supported tax reform fairly radical tax reform and uh, capital gains tax and yet they were told while he was overseas that i made a call and we're not gonna it's not gonna be part of the issues yeah <laughs> well i mean look i i'm baffled by it and i disagree with the decision and that's why it's important that you actually don't have a majority labor government because um, if if that had been a coalition situation, like you can't make captain calls like that because the government, you know, your coalition partners won't have that, and that would be a breach of like whatever coalition agreements that's been signed up. So, yeah, I think it's really important that we make sure that the next government has a more progressive direction. How are the Greens polling right now? Uh, depending on which poll you look at, we're you know either at eight percent or I think eleven point five percent. So, you know, a range of possibilities. And there's another poll coming out tonight. Um, so yeah, I think call it even and say ten, nine, ten percent. The People say that um, we actually need to, may need to shrink the material um, economy. That um, it's called degrowth. If we're going to escape the worst of climate change and not have the environment and our, perhaps our pleasant civilization collapse, what do you say about this? I mean, I think there was an Oxfam report that shows that like something like 
half of the emissions are caused by the um, wealthiest 5% of the population. Um, I really don't think anyone needs a private jet. Um, I really don't think that um, you need to have 20 mega mansions that are all running um, their own electricity system and burning coal off the grid. So um, to some extent, the green policy platform, um, which has a wealth tax in it, will kind of enable the broader redistribution of wealth, which will which will kind of help those mega wealthy people um, be relieved of some of the burden that they have of excess material consumption. So to that extent, yes, I think um, we do need to make sure that the um, that we're prioritizing a society that prioritizes um, the common being and the common but uh, sorry the well-being of the commons over the um, the individual prosperity and the material accumulation that has led to the people at the very top getting too much and the people at the bottom not very much um, we shouldn't have material deprivation in a country of plenty and I think that's what the Greens stand for do you think that for instance um, if do you think we should provide enough public transport so people families and uh, housing units shouldn't need more than one car if that if I know I, a lot of I people think, in Wellington for instance don't drive yes cars. well I think I think an ideal society you wouldn't even need a car to get around because um, because the public transport is that efficient and there's um, carpooling options if you need a private car if you need like a vehicle um, or if you're disabled and need some means of transport um, but yeah like I guess um, an ideal society um, wouldn't you would just have transport options and you wouldn't need a car to get around people talk about carrying on as we are and if you listen to Chris Hipkins, there's no need for radical change. We're not going to have change, whatever we do. I mean, can we go uh, through the next 20 or 30 years with climate change and so on and not see drastic change? You've hit the nail on the head, which is that if we don't change the way that we do things, if we don't adapt to climate change and begin preparing for the things that are going to happen, and if we don't um, reduce our emissions to account for um, the reality of climate change, the change is going to be forced on us. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize, and maybe they do realize, but they're scared of it, so that they deny it to themselves. But Isn't this one of the jobs of politicians and political parties to do that education? Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that's the case. But some people would rather peddle comforting lies than telling, you know, the, the reality which is going to happen. From what I've read, uh, we've put in a lot of um, carbon uh, energy that's not dependent on carbon. Wind farms um, and solar panels and the like. And we've done a lot of that in the world, but because we've increased our use of energy, that hasn't 
shown in a decrease in carbon. We've more or less kept carbon almost where it is. It's still grown, but we haven't been able to use less because at the same time we have more uh, ways of uh, creating power, electric power in particular, without carbon. We keep wanting to use more and more energy. Yeah, so the the pace of decarbonization has progressed a little bit from um, when we started. Um, the technology um, has improved considerably for renewables, but yeah, there is um, there is a demand management side to um, energy security, and I keep going back to the point of how um, nearly half of the emissions are generated by the wealthiest. Um, five percent or something um to that effect and you know like people do not need private jets to be um to be getting around to feel fulfilled people don't need to be living in 30 bedroom mansions with 10 x boxes in each room i think um you know i do believe that we should create a more secure and just economy for um the people who are struggling and most new zealanders but to, to do that, we need to make sure that the um, that people at the very top are paying their fair share. And if we do that, we take care of some of the more egregious problems of overconsumption and the materialism, the culture of mm. materialism and competition that has affected you know the billionaire elites. Do you think if we had a more equitable society, more equal society, we might actually be happier? with um, using with less wealth is wealth partly about status yes um, wealth is absolutely about status and by having a more egalitarian society and a more collective and connected society I think that's part of how we get there um, I think the sense of the sense of collective well-being and the sense of um being part of something bigger than yourself. That sense of civic society has fractured since the neoliberal reforms of the 1980s. And I think how we bring that back is we, br we bring back collective organization, um, not only um, in our private lives, but also like in workplaces and in, in neighborhoods. Um, and the Green Party manifesto talks about how we need to strengthen unions. Um, we would actually go back to universal union membership, um, not not only for student unions, but um, for workplace unions um, by making sure that, yeah, people can still opt out um, if they want to, but that we're supporting unions and backing them to be um, so that we can redistribute wealth in this country and put the power back in the hands of ordinary people where it belongs. I think part of the um, neoliberal revolution of the 1880s and early 90s was to break the power union, to break the power working people. Yes, that's exactly um, part and parcel of the... I mean, that was the stated goal of the reforms, I think, which which was to, you know, that, that rhetoric around um, individual labor mobility and things like that, and yeah... I think they've, they've, they've deliberately tried to break the unions. We talk about the failure of neoliberalism, but I'm not sure it was a failure. 
it succeeded for the people that um, at the very top who helped orchestrate it. It redistributed power from the many to the few. Yes, yeah. From 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 that perspective, it wasn't a failure at all. I mean, and you look. Not only did they redistribute redistribute um, the wealth, but they also convinced people that that was all right. That that was all right, and they convinced the people that everybody of, could be rich. Yes, yeah, the trickle down. <laughs> and of course, it didn't quite work, turn out like that. It really didn't. Um, it came at the, the 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 boom in prosperity that it's created for the people at the very top has come at the expense of ordinary working people um, in the conditions of work. Um, and, and it's also come at the expense of our planet as well. Um, and I think that's been understated in the way that that kind of consumption culture has kind of created and encouraged things like fast fashion, uh, drop shipping. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's been sad to see that. And we're talking with... Francisco Fernandez, who is the Green candidate for Deneen North and also on the list. And we're talking about uh, a more sustainable, more equitable society, if perhaps that's possible. I, I believe it is. Can we meet our social and physical infrastructure needs and keep them updated without increasing our revenue? And if not, what should be done about it? Well, I think you only need to look around and see the long lines at the hospitals um, to see the... to see... Um, you, you go on the street and then you wait for the bus and the bus never comes. I think it's quite obvious that we've got severe social deficits happening in our society from hospitals to transport to um um to policing increasingly increasingly the cracks of um a state which has been starved of needed revenue by the lack of a tax switch um and yeah the only way that we can fix that is actually by taxing wealth by cooling down the property market and stop treating um, houses as a get-rich-quick scheme rather than what it actually should be, like a place of security and comfort for um, everyday New Zealanders. I wonder if people forgotten what housing really means. I mean, say you've got three kids and you've got an ordinary job. Well, you and your, your partner have ordinary jobs. Maybe you're you're just breaking even. Mm. And the rent raises because at the end of the year, you got a new written contract. So you have to move. And you may have to move away from your school system. What if, what if your kids have to go to two or three different schools in, you know, in three or four years? Yeah. And because they, you have to move to, pay, to get cheaper rent. Or maybe you won't even have a decent house for a while. What, does, what effect does this have on families? It fractures people. Um, and it fractures society. Um, if people can't form individual links, people feel like they're not part of the communities that they're supposed to be part of. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, in the increasing disconnection, you know, people drop out of schools. Um, people, some people, because of that alienation that they've experienced, um, turn to having 
kinds of unhealthy um, friendships, like, for example, um, taking part in crime, um, taking part in drug activity. And I think that, that things like that, um, you know, broken policies create broken families, which create broken neighborhoods. And ultimately, these create broken people. Yeah, I also think that if you're unemployed for more than a generation, well, it's really hard to fix that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, when the Rogernomics reform smashed the guaranteed, um, well, not guaranteed, but the... The jobs. The jobs. The, 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 the jobs that existed. That yeah, had. the sawmills, the unions, um, the factories, the, the people that kept that working. Some of communities haven't recovered from that. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that damage was actually inflicted on rural New Zealand. I mean, is it any wonder that um, a lot of farmers um, cling, and a lot of the rural communities kind of, cl you know, cling on to the the things that looks like it's created prosperity for them because they they don't trust reforms because they think that reform means breaking communities. The inequality in our taxes and so on enables people to make a fortune, doesn't it, from instead of building houses for people, we build houses to to be part of the uh, economic yes, market. Yes, to, to be that speculation economy, that get-rich scheme, which is the New Zealand property market. And let me tell you, about what it also allows rich people to do. It allows them to buy political influence. Um, you've seen um, the media reports of ACT and the National Party getting like, you know, 10, 20 times more donations than Labour and the Green parties. Um, and that's because like wealthy people know where their interests are. The, 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 some of the you know, not all rich people, obviously, but I think a lot of the selfish rich people who don't have the mindset that what's good for my community is ultimately good for my bottom line, they they support the policies that are being advocated by um, ACT and the National Party. And they feel threatened by even the kind of um, mild reforms that Labour have been undertaking, like for example, fair pay agreements and increasing the number of um, labor inspectors to police labor abuses. That's one reason we've had so many forestry and, and the mine disasters, because we got rid of the inspectorate um, under Roger Douglas. And yes, yeah, yeah. Later on. Would you like so? A affordable, efficient passenger rail transport between Chicago and Wellington? And should we try to avoid flying? Or could we avoid flying if we had a good rail transport? No, I wouldn't want to see affordable and efficient passenger between Invercargill and Wellington. I'd love one from Northland to Bluff. Okay. So even bigger than just Invercargill and Wellington. <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure the North Island would get it, hopefully. Yes. And look, that needs to be extended to the South Island as well. Yeah. And look, uh, let's but not every just... every time you 
go to the North Island now. It's really hard to not fly. Yes. And look, let's not just think rail. I mean, rail, good. Yes, I support. But why not? You know, they're getting some of the electric ferries um, in places like um, China. And I think there's a service that's happening in Wellington recently. Um, yeah, let's let's broaden out the modes of transport, not just... You used to have a ferry between Littleton yes. and uh, Wellington. Yeah. Well, look, bring that back and bring one to Dunedin as well. You want to talk about the Green Party tax reform proposals? Yes, yeah, so um, the Green Party tax reform proposals basically would implement what's called the tax switch, which is um, which will do by um, making sure that um, people who have wealth of over two million individually and four million as a couple um, are taxed um, a small fraction of that wealth. Um, I can't quite remember the figure off the top of my head. I think it's zero point ten or. 17% or something. It's it's not very big um, in any case. And that, what that wealth tax um, will enable us to do is make sure that everyday New Zealanders get a tax cut. So 95% of um, New Zealanders would actually be better off by this proposal. And what it would also do is reduce the concentration of wealth in such a small part of the economy, which is the wealthy people, and make sure that it will incentivize things like, um, for example, if you're covered in that bracket and you don't want to get taxed, you might sell off some of your housing and ensure that that you know that first home buyer are able to access the market. So not only will it not only will it directly improve the kind of well-being of everyday New Zealanders by making sure that they get the tax cut um, that's funded from that tax switch, but it also will indirectly benefit a lot of people by cooling the um, absolutely bonkers housing market that we've had by affecting, um, I guess, a redistribution, rebalancing of wealth from the you know, wealthiest few to all of us. You believe that you can be one of the people who helps... Um People understand this. Well, I mean, Except, I think there's a there's a virtuous circle with taxation and a vicious circle. If um, you buy health insurance, say you're you've got a small business, you're middle class, and you buy, you can afford, you can barely afford health insurance, but you feel like you need it because you don't think you'll get that knee replacement or that hip replacement. Uh, you want your kids to be really well educated and the kids are paying for university already so you send them to a private school are you likely to, to if you're in that position and you don't trust the government to provide health care you don't trust them to provide free accessible education are you as likely to pay taxes as somebody who lives in a society where Health care is guaranteed. Everybody has the same accessibility to health care. Uh, education's free and uh, good, good quality. Are no, you more likely to be happy paying your taxes in that kind of society? Yes, you would be if you felt that you know you were getting, um, you know, benefit of it. And I think part of it as well. Part of the other benefit of that um, is that it makes sure that everyone. Um, 
can kind of mix and mingle. I think we've, I think wealth has created a stratified and segregated society where the people at the very top don't actually know what it's like for um, working New Zealanders because they haven't gone to school with them. Um, it's been separated by postcodes rather than making sure that we all have some kind of experience of, well, even if it's not firsthand that you're actually you actually know a poor person you know you, you actually don't believe the lies that people tell about people and the benefits and working New Zealanders because you know it's it's tough to live on a benefit um, and I think a lot of people well it's tough to live on a low wage too. yes it's tough to live on a benefit it's tough to live on a it's it's tough to live on a even a middle salary with the way that inflation's going these days well, thanks a lot, and for coming in. I really appreciate it. Anything else you have to say? No, no, no. Thank you so much for your time. I think the way that, I think, the conversations we've had today reinforces the need for people to make sure to vote for the most progressive option you can. Um, I think a lot of people are concerned that a vote for. Um, thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.